Welcome, stout yeomen, one and all, to the first episode of Into the Greenwood, the podcast where we take an in-depth look at the actual medieval world where the tales of Robin Hood take place, and consider how we interpret that character and what he means to us today. My name is Thaddeus, I'm an informal education specialist and history and folklore enthusiast. Put about as simply as I can, Robin Hood comes from a tradition of ballads, poems, and plays about outlaws that were being told in England in the late Middle Ages, roughly the late 13th century through the 15th century. The stories of Robin Hood in particular caught on and received further elaboration and development through the years in a way that essentially continues to this day. And while the character and what he's come to represent is adaptable enough that we've gotten retellings set everywhere from Prohibition-era Chicago to deep space asteroids, there is a definite time and place that we've come to associate with Robin Hood and his merry band. If you know anything at all about Robin, it probably includes the fact that his primary antagonist is the Sheriff of Nottingham and that he lives in Sherwood Forest. Since the entire goal of this podcast is to learn more about the real world that surrounds these tales, I couldn't think of a better place to begin than the iconic locations of Nottingham and Sherwood. And while these are real places that can be visited today, I want to think about what they would have looked like around the end of the 12th century, around the reign of King Richard I, which has become the time period we most often associate with Robin Hood. There's one little problem, though. We're talking about over 800 years in the past. To learn more about what Nottingham and Sherwood would have looked like at that time, and what life would have been like for the people living there, I spoke with archaeologist James Wright. Now, this episode will run a little longer than most episodes of Into the Greenwood, but James had a wealth of fascinating and relevant information to share, and I wanted to include as much of it as I could for this inaugural episode. So sit back and enjoy, as we upend expectations about medieval forests, learn about the origins of English pubs, discover just how impregnable Nottingham Castle may or may not have been, and why the infamous Sheriff of Nottingham should perhaps be given a different title in our stories. Thanks for, for joining us for our first episode of Into the Greenwood. Let's just start with a little bit about you. Would you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got involved with archaeology, specifically with archaeology in and around Nottingham and Sherwood? Sure. Um, so my name is James Wright. I am a buildings archaeologist by trade, which means I look at historic standing buildings rather than going digging these days. Although I have done quite a lot of digging in the past, but mostly I concentrate on architecture these days. Um, I've been involved with archaeology for ooh, well over 20 years now. I suppose I got interested in archaeology through talking to elderly relatives when I was a small, small boy, and then eventually going to the library and picking up lots of books on the medieval period, and um, and then looking at local history as well, and then eventually deciding that I was going to study archaeology at university. And I picked Nottingham University as, as the location to go and study at. 
And uh, Nottingham has one of the highest stay on rates of students anywhere in the UK. So lots and lots of students think this is a great place to live. It's a really livable, welcoming, uh, you know, really exciting city, really vibrant scene. So lots of students stay on. And I was one of those. I was a big statistic, <laughs> if you like. Uh, and so I started looking around for work. And eventually, one of the jobs that I, I, I had after, after having done a couple of other jobs was to become a community archaeologist. So engaged in public archaeology, uh, working with you know general society looking at the archaeology of the region and the project that i was uh, working on for you know a few years was linked to the archaeology of sherwood forest at that time i was working on a sub project which was specifically looking at castles great houses and palaces in the region so that's how i came to be working on the uh, the, the nottinghamshire region and in particular sherwood forest which i know is going to be the focus of your your podcast yeah one of the things that i find kind of fun about the idea of of looking at robin hood is that he's a figure that is very much tied to a specific place and we get this a lot with our, our fictional characters and heroes. Um, you know, you have Batman in Gotham City, you have King Arthur and Camelot, but unlike a lot of these other characters, Sherwood Forest is a very demonstrably real place. It's, you know, where you live. It has a real actual medieval history that we can look at, we can study, and we can continue to learn more about. And that's the idea I really want to get at. Sure. I mean, Sherwood is a, is, is a, as you say, a very real place. It was defined certainly by the, I suppose, the second quarter of the 13th century as being a, a big chunk of land to the north of the River Trent, which runs through Nottinghamshire. It is um, a, an area which was defined by the Trent to the south, by uh, the River Lean to the west, part of the river Morn to the north and then um, a, a road which was known as the king's highway which ran down the uh, the the east now these are sort of notional the, the the boundaries are slightly more complicated than that but it, it, you know there, there were these sort of landscape features rivers and roads which were the the border of the forest and, and we know this from what are called perambulations so these are legal documents which define the boundaries of sherwood and and you know we can see that from the 1220s um, and then they are repeated throughout the, the, the later medieval period there is an argument that sherwood was much bigger earlier than this um, so it was originally coexistent with what's called the forest of the clay to the uh, to the east of sherwood and also the forest of the peak to the uh, to, to, to the west which mm. was over into derbyshire uh, with with all of the lead mines there, so it used to be an absolutely enormous area of land set aside as a royal forest. And a royal forest is is not necessarily woodland. Uh, there the will be woodland interspersed with heathland, but also there's a lot of settlements in the in the forest as well. The forest is a legal term, which essentially means it's a hunting reserve. So there are laws within the common law, which mean there are certain things that you can and cannot do within the area of the forest. 
Yeah, that, I, I've been really fascinated to learn a little bit more about what we think of as a forest. I've got a very kind of limited mentality when it comes to just the definition of forest. I tend to think, oh, densely wooded area, maybe a few footpaths through it, maybe a couple of ranger stations or something. But to recontextualize the idea of a forest as this huge area of land that could include like whole settlements in it is really changing my whole way of thinking about forests, um, especially, you know, in, in this time and place. Uh, you mentioned settlements in Sherwood Forest. Is there kind of a, a general idea of how big some of these settlements could get to be and still be considered in the forest? Yeah. Um, so we are dealing with the largest settlement that is within the bounds of the forest is Nottingham itself, which in the high medieval period, you're looking at maybe up to about 5,000 people, something like that. So it's a, it's a decent sized town. It's not yet a city. Nottingham doesn't become a city until the 19th century. It doesn't have a cathedral within it, but it's still, you know, it's a county town. It's a decent sized settlement, but it's not enormous. Um, I suppose by the early Tudor period, you might want to compare sort of five to 6,000 people in Nottingham with 30,000 in Norwich, which was England's second largest city. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a reasonable town, but there are, of course, hamlets and villages within the forest area as well. I live about a mile or so to the east of Nottingham in a village that, well, in a, in a, in a suburb that is now called Snenton, which was originally a village, a satellite village, completely self-contained. And in these villages, you're usually looking at maybe two to 300 people living in them at an absolute maximum. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're reasonable size, but they're not absolutely vast. And there are, I can't remember the exact figure, but there's about 70 odd, um, villages and settlements within Sherwood Forest itself. So, you know, there's a, there's a fair degree of population. It's not a complete wilderness by any stretch of the imagination. So what would be, you know, the buildings like for the people living in Nottingham, living in these various villages and hamlets? Okay, the, 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 the ordinary people, so mainly tenant farmers within these rural settlements within the forest, are going to be living in almost exclusively timber-framed uh, architecture. So we're not looking at stone houses, really. There are some indications that the, 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 the foundations may have been of stone, but then the the, the, the substantive architecture coming off the top is going to be timber framed. And we, we can see this from documentary records. We don't have a huge amount of that timber framed architecture surviving. Uh, Nottinghamshire was substantially rebuilt in the 18th and 19th centuries. And a lot of those surviving medieval and Tudor houses were to an extent very old fashioned, but also were probably in quite a degraded state by that period. So a lot of them get replaced. Um, we are to the very, very eastern end of the distribution of a type of house called a crook um, framed house. And crooks have slightly curving profiles to them. Um, and we can imagine that they would look something like uh, an upturned ship. Uh, something like that in terms of the shape of them. 
and they're, they're cut out of the, the, the principal trunk of a, of a tree. Um, and they have these curving blades which support the roof structure. Now, these buildings are very common in the west of England and they become slightly less common towards the east. And we're about on the eastern dis- uh, end of the, that distribution. And there, there are a few which still survive in Nottinghamshire. And we are only talking about a handful of these things. There aren't that many. A lot have been destroyed. Uh, we know that some were destroyed during the, uh, the middle years of the 20th century, for example. The thing about these buildings is they don't really lend themselves to conversion later on because the curve of those uh, timbers don't really allow for upper floors. And so a lot of buildings, when there is the need for upper floors, which starts in the later 16th and into the 17th century, when there's a need for those floors, a lot of these buildings are destroyed at that period as well. So unfortunately, we've kind of got um, what you might call negative evidence because a lot of it has gone. To the best of my knowledge, we only have one or two buildings dated to around the year 1200 surviving in the in, in the county. And to be honest with you, I've never seen the interior of either of them because they are um, private, privately owned. But we do have some some survivals, but you know they're they're, they're quite limited. And so those are, are single story buildings. About uh, how how large are they how many people might meet, might we expect were living in one they are i mean we know a little bit more from archaeological excavated examples and also other versions of these buildings which survive beyond the county they are perhaps two or three bays in length um we're not talking particularly uh, substantial buildings there would be they would be divided by these crook blades into different bays which are different areas of the building and usually what you would expect in the medieval period is to walk into a a central entrance passage which will go from front to back of your house Um, you'll turn one way into the service bay which is where you might have your storage kitchens at this period are, are usually kept separate separate structures or they are entirely cooking externally um, you would then go the other way into your hall, which is a multifunctional space, which is definitely open to the to the rafters um, with uh, an open fire and smoke percolating from that fire through your thatch. And then beyond that, you might have a slightly more private parlour. Now, this is at the, the you know, maybe a, an artisan level or a yeoman farmer's level. At the real tenant farmer level, you know, the much more um, uh, reduced means, we might see something much simpler, which might um, might be a single or, or, or just two rooms. They, they might be much smaller and much rougher in construction. Um, but again, we don't quite know enough about that because we don't really have any of them standing. But they're, they're not huge buildings by any stretch of the imagination. We would think of them as a cottage uh, rather than a, a house. Uh, and many of these buildings have actually been remodeled and had things added to them. But sometimes we can get down to these, uh, you know, much smaller originals by surveying them archaeologically. And so what are what are they using for for insulation at this time? How are they kind of doing up their walls? What are they using for their roofing? So if you think about the timber framing, which provides the structure 
of the of the houses the the infill which is the bit that goes between the frames goes between the um the, the principal trusses of the building um are going to be filled out with things like wattle and daub which is where you've got woven hurdles of maybe hazelwood that kind of thing um to provide a kind of a quite a bouncy framework actually and then that's solidified by um slawming um uh, dung and lime and sand and mud within that to, to to create a wall surface and it's a solid wall construction with this uh hazelwood hurdling in in the middle of it to give it some sense of stability which the um the the, the, the daub actually hangs off and, and sticks to and we do get some some survivals of this we also have a tradition particularly in the the south and the eastern part of nottinghamshire um of what's called cob walling and this is solid mud construction um so so it, you know there's not um there's not necessarily a hurdle within there uh, a woven hurdle it's it's solid blocks of mud which are hmm. created and, and, and we do get some quite su- surviving uh, surprising survivals uh in cob walling in, in this part of the world but they do tend to be much later they tend to be 16th 17th 18th century in date again the the surviving buildings that we have from the 12th century in this part of the, the world tend to be stone built and much more high status right makes makes sense you can see how a stone yeah. building might be more likely to, to last than one of the the wattle and, and daub with hazel uh, lattice work yeah um and i'm Hadn't heard of the uh, phrase cobwalling before. I spent a lot of my childhood in the American Southwest around adobe construction there that was some of which was quite old. And so I've got this idea of, you know, kind of very ancient kind of baked bits of mud with straw in there for mm-hmm. supporting the structural integrity. Is the cobwalling kind of similar in that regard? Would there be straw and all worked into that? It's similar, but not identical. Um, I mean, we call it cob walling here. If you go over the county boundary to the east into Lincolnshire, they call it mud and stud over there because it's, it has got some timber elements in there as well. And they're referring to that timber framing as well as it. So, so you know, it depends where you are in the country, how it's referred to. And you get this with a lot of uh, lower status architecture, what's called vernacular architecture. Um, it will change in its, in, in its terminology, in its, in, in its style and in its building materials, according to where you are in the country but also where you are in time as well. So it, essentially, vernacular architecture will change according to time and space. I can only really speak about the East Midlands because that's where I live and, and most of my work occurs. I've also done quite a bit of work in the Southeast as well. Uh, and I can tell you now that the architecture of the Southeast during the medieval period looks remarkably different to what we have up here in the East Midlands. I, I'm, I'm really fascinated by this idea of the the vernacular architecture and there being you know these these different terms for the same or similar styles i I like the term cobwalling a lot it it invokes the idea of like cobwebs which also has that (laughs) structural component um i would be afraid to google the term mud and stud for fear of what i would find (laughs) 
I think you probably find lots of vernacular architecture geeks because there are a lot of us out there. I belong to something called the vernacular architecture group, and there are um, uh, subgroups within this uh, quite ancient and august society which specialise in different types of construction and and and. and some 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 of those are people that specialize in in mud and stud architecture so i think we'll be pretty safe on saying that you'll actually come up with the stuff that you're actually looking for that's good <laughs> glad to hear it that's certainly what i would be looking for at least <laughs> so uh segueing to the idea of the stone buildings being the ones that are most likely to stand and you were saying how you started with this uh project of of kind of surveying manors and castles in the area what what can I can you tell us about what sort of castles and castle type structures would have been around circa twelve hundred in that area? Well, firstly, it's worth noticing uh, or noting rather than that what I started off doing with the castles of Nottinghamshire project, which ran from two thousand and four to two thousand and eight, was that we were principally looking not at big stone constructions such as those at Nottingham and Newark, we were actually looking at earth and timber sites. So when castles start in the East Midlands, and in fact, when they start across um, uh, lowland England, what we're really looking at for the vast majority of sites are what are called Mott and Bailey castles, which is where you have a big earthwork mound with an attached enclosure, which is a enclosed with a bank and a ditch and you can have multiple baileys multiple enclosures beyond that and their um, structures their their palisades their walls their buildings within are in that early period in time are built from timber again and of course we don't have any of those still standing but we do have the earthworks um, surviving so we can go to places such as Annesley Castle which is actually on the boundary of Sherwood Forest it's one of the boundary markers by the early 13th century when this castle we know has almost certainly gone out of use we have a reference in the uh, 1220s to it being the the old or the ancient castle of Annesley suggesting that it's no longer there and in fact from archaeological survey we know that the enclosures of Annesley Castle up on top of its hill were turned over to agriculture what's called ridge and furrow ploughing we know that from geophysical survey looking into the soil to see what uh, what survives archaeologically and so we got a glimpse there of a castle that had probably been built maybe around 1100, late 11th into the earlier 12th century, and then had gone out of um, use maybe 100 years later. And the site had then moved down the valley a, a couple of miles to where Annesley Hall was built. And this is a, a, right down in the River Valley next to a parish church. We know that the hall, which was probably built of timber framing, had a crown post roof because in, I think, the 1950s or 60s, it was found in situ, encased within later structures. So we can probably see the Lords of Annesley deciding, well, actually, that old site on top of the hill, it was a bit remote. We didn't have water up there. We mm. want to go and live in some more comfort. We want to be closer to our parish church and our settlement, so we'll move the site. Then the old castle sort of um, dies away uh, to all intents and purposes, becomes a boundary marker. So that's kind of the repeated story across much of Nottinghamshire, that we have these earth and timber 
mott and bailey or sometimes ring work sites and a ring work is where you don't have the mott you just have the enclosure with the buildings inside it we have a lot of these buildings uh, proliferating. We probably have 12 or 15 Motton Bailey castles, and then gradually they go out of fashion. But some of them are actually repurposed or upgraded. So we have pretty good evidence that, for example, Worksop Castle, which is to the north of Sherwood, is upgraded to stonework. The site has lots of weathered pathways across it and where the the passage of feet has worn away the grass uh, and worn into the, the the ground we can actually see that there are stone walls appearing out of the old Martin bailey castle and the same is true also at laxton which is the castle from which sherwood forest was run it's the administration center for sherwood is laxton castle it's an enormous martin bailey castle and we have it uh surviving as as earthworks but in and amongst those earthworks we can see that um there is evidence for stonework there so some of the sites continue into the 13th century nottingham castle of course is one of these it probably starts off life as an earth and timber motton bailey castle on top of its great uh, stone cliff face and then is gradually transformed by the monarchy into stone and that's how we come to, to to know more about these sites because we actually get upstanding stonework surviving at nottingham the earliest stonework we have above ground is from the 1250s but meanwhile, the bishops of Lincoln have a palace across to the east of Nottinghamshire uh, on the banks of the River Trent at Newark. And there, their castle, the upstanding masonry, the earliest bits of it date to the uh, to the 1130s. But there is a Motton Bailey underneath that castle site as well. It was simply scarped away. So, you know, it's complex. Things change over time. But ultimately, we've got these earth and timber sites which are starting uh, to be built in the probably the 11th century. We do have one which might actually precede the Norman conquest of uh, 1066. We have a site called Bothamsall, which is another boundary marker. Well, it's just just to the uh, to the northeast of Sherwood Forest, but it overlooks a significant strategic point in Sherwood. And there we have some evidence that it may in fact be an Anglo-Scandinavian enclosure, which is later refortified by the Normans. So it's, it's a complex uh, picture, but we have earth and timber to begin with, and then gradually giving over to stone construction for the sites that do survive. Now, the ones that are, are apt to survive, these ones that are apt to get reworked uh, with stone. Is there something that is administratively useful that we think that might be um, purposeful for wanting to kind of keep this, making it stronger, more fortified? Are there um, military reasons for wanting to kind of upgrade the defenses that we're aware of? I think we have to be careful with the idea of um, militarization, fortification and defense when approaching castles. The idea of these buildings as being inherently constructed for military defence is, is, is sort of one that was made very popular by the late Victorians and became, I suppose, 
um, built into the writing of specialists who were very much influenced by the First and the Second World Wars. Um, so we get a lot of very militarized writing in the uh, the 1950s and 60s and, and 70s. But from the 80s and 90s onwards, we've got a whole different idea of how these castles are operating. And, and, and some of the things that um, later specialists, including myself, have, have, have really tried to emphasize is that Castles are primarily very elaborate residences, and those residences are ways for great lords to kind of show off their power, their prestige, their majesty, their might, etc. Now, they will draw upon um, military um, iconography to do that, such as crenellations uh, running across the top of the walls there, such as machiculations overhanging gateways that kind of thing these become markers of of, of of military power but a lot of them are entirely symbolic so we have to be kind of a little careful in in how we approach this because castles do have um, uh, the function ultimately of being great symbols of elite status and that's their their primary purpose now, to answer your question more directly, uh, why do some of these sites survive when others fall away? Well, at Annesley, I think it's probably because it was quite a remote site. There wasn't a river nearby. There wasn't, you know, uh, we don't know what the uh, the water situation was like up on the hill. Um, it was simply they probably moved to a slightly more comfortable environment. The ones that do survive, such as Nottingham and Newark, for example, both of which start off as earth and timber Martin Baileys, they're surviving because they are useful sites. So Newark, for example, is at, to, uh, at the crossroad of two very, very significant roads. Uh, we have the Great North Road, which is running from London to York. And also we have the Foss Way, an old Roman road, which is running from Exeter to Lincoln. And it's right on the crossway, uh, crossroads of these two principal highways. But it's also where the, um, the River Trent, uh, is very navigable too. And there's a ford of the River Trent there as well. And the Trent's a very significant river in England because it is the traditional boundary between the north and the south and it was considered to be so important that uh, we have a reference to Henry I the king that whenever he, um, he moved north of the Trent he would double his bodyguard because hmm. the north was seen to be so um, uh, rebellious and, and full of outlaws and there was the threat of raiding Scotsmen that kind of thing. So Newark you can see is a very strategic hub in the landscape and this is why the bishops of lincoln chose uh, to put it there but it also has a great economic um role as well so the, the bishops are actually looking after the market as well and they're receiving huge amounts of income so there's a real tie there between um landscape economy but also religion in the forms of, of the bishops and that's just one site that's uh turned over to this great stone castle of which we have about 20 percent surviving right you mentioned these bishops having you know one of the, these remaining stone castles and it certainly was occurring to me whether or not they would have a castle for that purpose of status and impressiveness as opposed to defense. Because I, I certainly goes against images I have, uh, at least aside from Odo with 1066 of bishops actually going to war, mm. but wanting to impose uh, a sense of impressiveness upon the, the locals around them is much more in keeping with my understanding. 
Well, it certainly makes sense because uh, the, the chap who's responsible for commissioning the new castle at newark in the 11 uh, well 1129 is really when he founds it but um it's uh or refounds it but it's uh the building work all occurs in the 1130s he's a fella called alexander the magnificent so you know his title gives you a clue as to what he was like in life alexander the magnificent and he builds this magnificent castle um but he's not the only one in 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 our area in the sherwood area uh building um uh, great houses in a sense so slightly later on in the 15th century we have john kemp who is the archbishop of york and he builds a very very well appointed uh palace at southall which is about 10 miles to the northeast of uh, nottingham uh, and this is in association with a great minster church which is part of the archdiocese of york and the and the, and the diocese of york are also involved in building a a, a great house of residence at the very, very top end of the county, a place called Scrooby as well. So we do have lots of buildings which which go up um, for these churchmen. And it's worth thinking of churchmen not just being holy souls either. They are quite often political entities in their own right, and they, they hold vast estates, and they do get involved in the political shenanigans of the day. Yeah, so on, on the topic of... Of religious men, you did in our earlier emails mention a couple of monasteries uh, that are in the area, Rufford and Worksop. Um, I was mm. kind of wondering uh, what do we know about when they were founded, how big they were, how how self-contained they might have been. Well, the um the sort of history of monasticism in Nottinghamshire um probably starts in the in the early, in the very, very early 12th century with the building of uh, Lenton Priory, which is um, just outside Nottingham. And it's built by William the Conqueror's henchman, William Peveril, who's a very close supporter of the Conqueror uh, and, 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 and his, his sort of family. Um, and it's, it's built um, or it's founded in the early 1100s. And this uh, is, is, is given to the Cluniac order, who are an order of French monks, and they build an absolute whopper of a monastery there's been quite a lot of excavations on the site and we are seeing a priory church which is as big as southern minster which is our other great medieval church that we have surviving um, now very little of lenten priory is still available to see above ground um, there's one pillar from the ambulatory of the east end um, that survives there is a bit of a slightly later in what's probably the infirmary chapel. And then there's also the font um, from the church as well. The font was actually big enough to immerse people in. It's one of those immersion fonts. They're quite rare, to be honest with you. But that's the kind of the beginnings of monasticism in, in the county. And then gradually, as the medieval period develops, we start to see more lords thinking, well, I want to show my great piety. I want to make sure that I uh, get some time off from purgatory by doing good Christian works. And it's, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's a pretty well-established phenomenon that if you're a lord, you have to show off your lordship using your Christianity. It becomes an inherent part of showing off your power and prestige in the same way 
way that constructing a castle does. But of course, there are people who are constructing because of their genuine piety as well. It's a complex um, pattern. And so we start to get the foundation of places such as Rufford, which you mentioned. Uh, if Lenton Priory is mostly gone, we have bits of Rufford still standing. Here it's the Cistercian Order, who are a very austere group of monks they they like to go out into the wilderness and quite often they get involved in quite uh, developed agriculture they drain the um, the, the fens they bring sheep farming to yorkshire and they go into sherwood forest they found um, a, a monastery at rufford the patron there is a fellow called gilbert de gant who'd been a very naughty boy during the anarchy of stephen which is a civil war fought in the middle years of the 12th century. And Gilbert de Ghent, uh, he burns Pontefract Priory, which is a very naughty thing to do in the medieval period. And, you know, he, he risks excommunication, etc. And so in great um, abject apology, he founds Rufford and he uses mm. his money and uh, his estates and he, and he builds this, well, he pays for the building of this new, this new abbey. Uh, and we have bits of it surviving, which do date to the later end of the, of the, uh, the 12th century, uh, the period that I know that you're interested in. And here we have uh, what's called the Lay Brothers Dining Hall, essentially. The Lay Brothers uh, are not necessarily the, the, the monks who sing mass eight times a day they're allowed to have some time off from singing masses to go and work in the fields and we have the lay brothers dining hall which has beautiful rounded columns supporting a really really fine ribbed vault ceiling and adjacent to that is a slightly less uh, later vaulted storage area and these two um, structures are, are coexistent with each other and they support what was called the uh, the lay brothers uh, dormitory where they would sleep at night so there's not much of rufford left but again like lenton it's had excavations over the years and we know something of its plan um it's later turned into a country house after the after the reformation so yeah we have these uh, these great monasteries which are founded there are others as well such as uh newstead abbey it's actually a priory in the medieval period it's later made famous as the house of the poet lord byron um uh, and and there we have a, a we have the cloisters surviving. The church is largely gone, although the West Front does survive, but the cloisters survive. So we've got that, which has then been turned also into a country house, but we have much more of that surviving than we do at Rufford. So yeah, there's lots and lots of uh, monasteries that, that start going up uh, in this particular period that I know you're interested in, in the uh, particularly in the 12th century. Uh, and again, we have places like Worksop Priory as well, which the church there survives. Can we estimate about how how many monks there might be in some of these monasteries? Um, off the top of my head, I can't remember specific figures for, for the numbers of monks, um, but we're looking generally at sort of 10 to 30, some, somewhere in that area. And, and it will fluctuate through time as well, depending on recruitment, uh, depending on the wealth of the abbey as well. But it, it tends to be about 10 to 30 monks in the Nottinghamshire. Uh, monasteries yeah and we mentioned earlier various villages and all that might be around uh in the sherwood forest area would there usually be a single church in one of these villages that would be serviced by a priest that lived in that same village usually but not always 
So um, most of the more substantial manors will have a parish church, which will usually be founded and paid for by the lord of the manor. And we do have, you know, a lot of medieval churches surviving, or if not the entire church, then there will be a bit of the church which survives in the medieval period. And we do have some lovely 12th century um, examples of that. Um, such as the beautiful Romanesque doorway at Balderton, just outside Newark, or maybe again the, uh, um, uh, the, the beautiful survival, 12th century surviving church at Cookney, um, which is um, in Sherwood as well. So, you know, we have some, some really good examples of Romanesque architecture in Nottinghamshire. Some of the churches actually which we do have are um, places such as Worksop Priory, where the church has actually survived the Reformation in the Tudor period and has then the monastic church has become the um, the, the town's church in, in the later period as well. So that's actually how we get some of our Romanesque survivals. But yeah, generally you would have a, a parish church within the manor. Sometimes you do get settlements such as uh, King's Clipston, which is uh, right in the centre of Sherwood Forest, where there was apparently never a medieval parish church and the villagers would have to walk a couple of miles uh, up some green lanes through the fields to nearby Edwinstow, where there is a medieval church. And that might be affected by the f- um, by the presence of the royal palace at Clipston. Um, the, the, the Plantagenet monarchy built themselves a dirty great palace, about seven and a half acres in size within the enclosure. Uh, absolutely vast place in the uh, 1160s and then redeveloped throughout the 13th and 14th century. And, the, and we know for a fact that there's three chapels within that enclosure. And then just um, outside of it, there's also another chapel as well. So it might be that there was quite a lot of religious provision. And because a lot of the people who were involved with um, the, um, the maintenance and running of this palace were local villages, it might be that they actually had permission to use the, 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 the royal palace's chapel, its great chapel in there as well, which might account for the fact that we don't have um, a, a church uh, in, in, in the village really until the early 20th century. They're, they're going off to uh, to Edwinstow in the post-medieval period. So it might be that in the medieval period, they're using the, the palace's chapel. But yeah, it's, as I say, it's a complicated um, picture. So another thing I've been wondering about with this idea of the forest law uh, that existed, and I've, I've got you know, this notion that the forest law could be very, very strict um, in terms of how much uh, wood could be cut down, how much even firewood could be collected. So I was wondering how this ties into our our buildings. Does somebody have to get special permission from a legal authority before they can construct a new house? And then are they taking the timber from Sherwood Forest, whatever the nearest wooded area uh, within the Sherwood bounds would be? So um, the, the forest law, I think I said right at the very beginning, is, is, is essentially a law within the common law. So it's an extra layer of, of legal administration for the area within the bounds of the forest. And principally, the forest law is there to protect the beasts of the chase, um, the, 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 the king's hunting reserve. And it's not just the beasts themselves, but it's also their habitats that are being um, preserved and protected protected according to these laws. So, you know, the laws can be quite stringent, as you say. They can be quite restrictive. 
So, for example, if you live within the forest environment, you're not allowed to take your horse and car off the highway into the into the uh, the woodland or the heathland, because obviously that could give you the ability to then stack up timber that you might be felling uh, there. Um, there are restrictions on the carrying of bows and arrows to stop uh, the, I suppose, the temptation to go poaching, although poaching happens all the time it's in the courts constantly so the laws you know might be quite stringent but it doesn't stop people going poaching and also at the very highest level of society in the 1280s the keeper of sherwood forest uh, robert de everingham is is brought up in court for poaching and he's the man responsible for stopping people poaching so you know everybody's at it constantly but you know th- there are th- these laws and you can't take your bow and arrow into in, 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 into the forest if you own a dog, you have to have its claws clipped again to prevent it from chasing and then bringing down uh, the beasts of the chase. And, you know, traditionally and famously, of course, it's the king's deer, which appears so often mm-hmm. in the Robin Hood stories, right. um, which, which is being uh, which is being brought down by poachers. And, you know, the the deer is the most high status of all the the meats that you, venison is the most high status of all the meats uh, brought up at table and when we find venison um in the archaeological record we get lots and lots of uh, deer bones particularly fallow deer lots and lots of those but also uh, red deer and roe deer as well turn up in the in the archaeological record on high status sites um with 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 quite a degree of um well, in quite high numbers, but they're also hunting wild boar and also smaller creatures such as otters and 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 hares and foxes. There are lots of different types of uh, uh, of, of, of animals which are hunted, and they use various techniques for this. So they they will engage in what's called the uh, the bow and stable technique which is where you drive lots of animals lots of animals through the woods and they'll have hurdles to channel them um, they'll drive them into valleys and then they'll pick them off from particular standpoints known as stands with they, bow and arrow are they driving them by kind of like beating the bushes and having dogs yeah. barking and- yeah 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 it takes a tremendous number of people and you get a tremendous number of animals and it might be that you do this if you've got a big feast for example but the most high status form of hunting is called par force de chien and this is where you select a stag a single stag and then you chase it across the landscape on horseback with your dogs and these chases can go on all day and then the kill is quite ritualized as well and it's often done with a sword um so there's different types of hunting hunting is all about um sort of social bonding and military training uh, as much as it is meat provision in fact it's probably more about uh, social bonding than it is meat provision um so you know the 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 intention therefore of the forest laws is to create a hunting reserve so that the animals of the chase are not only kept safe from everybody else that lives in the forest but also so that um uh, their that their, their habitat is kept safe as well so that the 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 woodland the heathland is 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 kept safe from from change as well now you asked me about how does this uh, affect building within within the forest and yes, you would have to go and get permission to cut down timber. 
So Sherwood was principally uh, oak and birch interspersed with areas of, of heathland, which is basically heather and gorse. Um, and we have oak trees reaching maturity to the point where they can be cut down for building at about 200 years. So again, you don't just want anybody in there cutting down your timber because it's a great investment to grow the timber and to manage the woodland. And there are lots of people out there who are engaged in forest management, in woodland management during the medieval period. So we do get um, accounts, for example, again, going back to King's Clipston, which we know a lot about because we have lots of accounts related to it. In the 1220s, uh, we see quite a catastrophic fire um, hitting uh, the village of Clipston. And we see permissions being given by the monarchy to go and cut down um, uh, oak trees from their nearby managed woodlands at Birklands and Bilhay. So, yeah, it is there. And it's so, yeah. That there are problems and there are fault lines and there are anxieties and tensions which do grow up as a direct result of the forest laws. So with the idea of pubs in the medieval period, though, you know, it's a very popular notion. The idea that there are some kind of taverns and pubs, a lot of these ideas feel very born of, of modern fantasy literature, though. You know, you get the Lord of the Rings and you have the prancing pony where our, our hobbits and Aragorn meet. Um, in modern Robin Hood stories, you have the Blue Boar Inn. Is there any kind of understanding that there was some sort of public house that people might have been using in the late 12th century, early 13th century? What you're looking at really is 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 we have to get away from the idea of using our modern brain and we have to try and get back into the contemporary mind in, in exactly. terms of what constituted a pub or an inn or a tavern where would people go to meet and have a drink together hmm, well there's lots of different ways that they do this um so you know certainly the culture that's coming out of the late saxon period which does continue into the medieval period is that people brew their own beer and that some people would have you know eventually get a kind of a license to provide beer for uh, an event maybe and and throughout the medieval period one of the things that is really really popular are church ales now this is a kind of a, almost like a charitable event where you raise money for your local parish church maybe to rebuild the nave of the church or to do some maintenance you know the famous church roof repairs which we hear so much about and they will basically brew up a massive amount of booze and then you'll pay a certain amount. And then in the churchyard, or quite often in the nave of the church itself, they will have an almighty booze up. Uh, and, and the money that's that's gathered from that will then go to pay for the maintenance. So that's one of the ways that people are drinking socially in this period in time. And of course, they're all brewing beer at home as well. Uh, at higher status sites, we have references to to brew houses i mentioned before the brew house yard at nottingham castle which is where presumably the beer is being made and then taken up the service tunnels to the uh, the castle on the rock above um so there are lots of different ways that people have access to to to, to drink and booze uh, during the period in terms of how i suppose what we might think of an inn develops is that in that earlier period that i was talking about 
previously, where we start to see the emergence of monasteries, uh, not just in Nottinghamshire, but across the country. Monasteries have a responsibility to provide hospitality for guests, which is usually on the understanding that the guests will be pilgrims, travellers. There's not very many reasons where you're given license to travel in medieval England, but pilgrimage is one of those. And you might go from monastery to monastery on the pilgrimage tour. And many of these monasteries, of course, have their, their own shrines or their holy artifacts. And again, it's the way that people might think that they're getting time out of purgatory at a later period. And so we start to see the development of sort of guest accommodation at these places. Uh, which will include provision of food and drink. And really from the 13th century, the monasteries cotton on to the idea that they can actually put their hospitality outside of the walls. And then we start to see the development of essentially proto-hotels, really. You know, they are an inn where you can get rooms, communal rooms. You're not getting your own your own room at this period in, in time, uh, not unless you're very high status. And even then, you've probably got other people in, in your room as well. And then we start to see these courtyard inns developing. Now, we don't, we don't have any of those surviving in this county at all, but not too far away to our east is Grantham, and there they do have a, 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 a late medieval, admittedly, 15th century inn, courtyard inn, surviving called the Angel. And there you go through a portal, um, a, a big stone frontage, uh, um, and, and, there's a, and there's a gate, and you go through that, and you come into an inn yard, which would have had galleries, overhanging, oversailing galleries with rooms, and there'd be a great hall where you'd be able to get a beer and that kind of thing. And that's kind of what happens, is that you start to see monasteries basically providing uh, extra mural hospitality, which eventually develop into inns as we would know them. And I think one of the greatest survivals of these is probably the new inn, uh, which is a, a total misnomer because it's a 14th century building, which is in Gloucester, uh, um, you know, a long way from here, but it still looks recognizably like a medieval inn would look like. Uh, and then later on, of course, in the in the in the post medieval period, these inns start to uh, to diversify, and, and in London in particular, and then also I must say in the in the provinces, well, we start to see them used as um, venues for theatre, and yeah. uh, and the inn architecture, the courtyard inn, eventually kind of evolves into the playhouses of London, such as the the, the Globe and the Rose and and the theatre itself, and of course, you know, one of the things that does get put on. A uh, very, very popular subject are the tales of Robin Hood. Um, so right. there is a nice connection there um, between you know, the subjects of your podcast and these inns. In the, the, in the post-medieval period, we do have evidence for the Robin Hood stories being dramatized and put on in these pubs. That's fantastic. One, one last question kind of connecting to that idea of Robin Hood stories and our kind of modern interpretation of them. A thing I see all the time in the movies and television is that having to to break into Nottingham, either the castle or the city itself. The city is often depicted as pretty heavily fortified. What what do we know about Nottingham in terms of its accessibility? Was it a walled city? Would there have been a garrison there? It was certainly a walled city. Um, we have 
tiny fragments of it still surviving which can be seen uh there is a hotel in the city center which has um uh its basement has a, a fragment of, of of the wall within it i mean it's not very long it's only seven or eight meters or something like that it's not very much um but it, it was excavated archaeologically when the hotel was going up and it's been preserved so you can actually look down into it from the street which is a nice thing for uh, locals and tourists alike and, and we certainly understand exactly where the route of the town wall went um but the town wall it, it kind of comes off the castle which is to the uh to the west of the city and it kind of loops round to the north and then sort of comes around but by the time we get to the uh, the east of the city the town wall itself seems to be quite ephemeral and they seem to have started the building project of the town wall in stone but never really completed it so you know it, <laughs> i suspect it would probably be quite quite easy to get inside nottingham and uh, there's certainly no wall to the south for example it's only to the north so again a lot of the town wall building is about showing your your corporation's prestige that that, that building t- town walls and gates and towers becomes another way that you show off your status as a town and, and nottingham they don't seem to have gone the full circuit of course, that's a, Nottingham's a heavily remodelled town. Uh, it had been very heavily fortified during the Anglo-Scandinavian period. Um, by um, well, we know that it's fortified in uh, in in the mid ninth century by the Danes, for example. Mm. Uh, we have a reference in the Anglo-Saxon chronicle. But the old Anglo-Scandinavian burr, uh, which is to the east of the city, is then greatly expanded after the Norman period. Uh, the city expands the other side of the market square and we get what's called the Norman borough. So the city or the, or the town gets much, much bigger. Um, so we, th- there are these older fortifications on the, uh, on, on the old uh, cliff edge there. Um, but by the high medieval period, they've, they've, they've engaged in this program of wall building, which I don't think is ever quite completed. However, Nottingham Castle is a big enterprise. Um, most of the medieval uh, monarchs have a go at Nottingham Castle in terms of building or remodelling. We know a lot about what was there. Uh, sadly, um, I'm sure many of your listeners will know about this, but um, Nottingham Castle, the medieval castle, was more or less wholesale demolished in 1651 on the orders of Parliament. Uh, it was a parliamentarian garrison all the way through the English Civil War. But I think because it was so strong and the fact that it didn't fall, it was considered to be at risk. You know, it could have been taken by covert means, by royalists, disgruntled royalists. So there was the decision to bring it down. But also symbolically, Nottingham Castle is where King Charles I raised his standard. Now, he was only there for a matter of weeks and almost immediately that the royalists left to go and fight the Battle of Edge Hill. The parliamentarians moved in and then never gave the place up. So I think they symbolically got rid of it again because Charles I raised his standard there. So we don't have a huge amount of Nottingham Castle left, but from archaeology, we know a lot about medieval Nottingham because a lot of the castle has been excavated. And also quite recently, I've been involved in the excavations there, uh, working alongside Trenton Peak Archaeology to to actually understand certain areas of, of, of the castle a little bit better in advance of some remodelling with new galleries going up. The whole castle site's been completely transformed. Um, the, 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 the museum and art gallery there have been been transforming the site they've thrown millions of pounds at it and we know something of the medieval castle so 
it had three probably four different enclosures and what we know most about is the outer enclosure the outer bailey because we have the circuit of the walls to the east and south principally great big stone constructions on the on the cliff edge there the gatehouse which is one of very few gatehouses surviving from the reign of uh, henry the third big twin drum towers with a portal in between it had a drawbridge uh, and then came down onto a stone bridge which you approach the drawbridge over so we know something about that that survives and then internally there would have been you know lots of buildings ancillary buildings lodging ranges that kind of thing internally and then there was a there was another enclosure the middle bailey which is where the great hall and the chapel were and again that's right up on the cliff edge later on in the 15th century there was a huge plan um uh, plans lodging range with great tower built for edward the fourth up there and then the real heart of the castle was the, the the inner bailey which is on what's called a mott with a very very strong rock ditch to its east and to its north and that's where we had another great tower and the royal lodging suites. And, and much of the castle had subterranean passages as well, connecting different areas of it and actually running down to the, um, to the foot of the, um, of the castle as well. And these were subterranean service passages for the movement of goods, um, that kind of thing. So, you know, it was an incredible site. It would have been, um, for those uh, of your listeners that know about places such as Warwick Castle or Kenilworth Castle, you know, these great stone frontages with lots of multiple towers um, it was something akin to that but sadly we've lost the whole thing what we do have is a is, is a late 17th century ducal palace which was constructed on the site which is architecturally very important it's one of the most important buildings of the 17th century because it goes on to inspire places like chatsworth house in in derbyshire so i have a great love for this site uh, even as it is in a greatly reduced uh, uh, appearance from uh, how it would have been in the medieval period but it has other things that are important about it um, in, in in history not just of nottingham but also in the in the, in, the, in in the wider country as well so nottingham castle would be difficult to get in into. However, people did get into it. In 1194, it was besieged by King Richard I. He gets into the castle after a three-day siege uh, against the um, supporters of his brother John. And then, of course, famously in 1330, Edward III, under the cover of night, creeps up one of those service passages and collars Roger Mortimer, the supposed lover of his mother, who's almost usurped the power of the throne. And he, and he hauls him out of there and he's eventually hanged in London. Um, so, you know, there are ways in which Nottingham Castle does to an extent fall, um, but it's only successfully besieged on one occasion. So you, you mentioned, you know, the early fortifications that were later built up, that there was uh, some, some Anglo-Saxon Scandinavian work there. The Danes did some fortifications. When, when does the name Nottingham start to be applied and where does that name come from? The oldest reference to Nottingham is mid ninth century. And it's actually that reference which refers to the Danes fortifying it that we get our first mention of Nottingham. And it, it is a Saxon place name, and it, it basically means the, the settlement of the followers of Snotter. And Snotter is presumably an early Saxon leader, uh, a, a lord, 
and his his followers all decide that they're going to live in Nottingham. And uh, we don't know exactly when that was, but uh, you know we certainly know that they were that, that they were there by the ninth century uh, because the site is then captured by the Danes. Uh, the 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 actual homestead where Snotter himself lived is exactly where I'm sat now, which is on the hill to the east of Nottingham, which is uh, the town of Snenton. And Snenton and Nottingham have the same route. Uh, Snotter lived in Snenton and his followers lived in Nottingham. Um, so, you know, that, it's a Saxon place name, probably early to middle Saxon, but we don't know exactly. And Sherwood also comes from a Saxon name. Is that correct? Uh, yes, I think it does. Yes. And it, it literally means the wood of the Shire. That's where it comes from. The Shire being Nottinghamshire. Yeah. Yeah. And for our, our audience members who might primarily associate the Shire with the place where, where hobbits live, uh, <laughs> how, how would you define a Shire? A shire is a regional uh, area which is under uh, a kind of an administration. So you'll have a county town and then a region around that county town which is administered from the county. So the you know the kind of the law courts and then the judiciary and taxes are paid to the uh, the person in charge, and that will be the sheriff. And that's hence how we come to have the sheriff of Nottingham. Although it's worth noting that in the medieval period there was no sheriff of nottingham there was a sheriff of nottinghamshire but not of nottingham um so it's a slight misnomer when you see that represented in the hollywood films of of the of, of robin hood it's the sheriff of nottinghamshire real quick before i let you go you mentioned okay. uh your blog with uh triscally heritage right mm -hmm. there mm -hmm. anything else that you would like to to plug uh any other social media that people might follow you on well, yeah, I mean, people are more than happy to follow me on Twitter. I, I post there most days, usually about history and archaeology, occasionally about my cats uh, when I'm allowed out about gigs, but usually history and archaeology. And I can be found on at JPW Archaeology. I can be found there. Um, I've, I've written quite extensively over the years. So I've got lots of articles and a couple of books available. And some of those books are on the, the history and archaeology of Nottinghamshire as well. One that's still readily available is my book on the castles of Nottinghamshire, which is slightly out of date now. I probably do need updating it or, or writing part two of it. But, um, you know, it's still a, a fairly solid introduction to the, you know, the posh buildings throughout Nottinghamshire in the medieval period. And where can somebody find uh, your book? Um, just a, a Google search, you'll find it. You'll just Castles of Nottinghamshire, James Wright. It's available very cheaply as well, actually, because it was mass produced and there's still quite a lot of copies available. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'll make sure to get one. Um, I, I've been enjoying uh, your book, A Palace for Our Kings, which is okay. about Clipston yeah. Manor right there in the center mm -hmm. of Sherwood. It uh, has mm. a lot of detail about that medieval history, a lot of really interesting mm. anecdotes and things to learn there. Mm. Uh, I was able to yeah. find the Kindle edition quite readily. Yes, it's only available on Kindle now. All of the uh, the physical copies sold out years ago, and we decided not to uh, to go down the, the the reprint route with that one. Um, but yep, still available via 
via Kindle. Yeah. I've got other books in the pipeline at the moment, but, uh, uh, you know, that, that, that they're either written and awaiting publication or, or, or are still in the writing process. But yeah, over the years, I've written lots of things. My, um, my website, which you mentioned very kindly earlier, Triscally Heritage, does have a full list of my publications on it. Also my broadcasting as well, because I do do quite a lot of podcasts and, 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 and vlogs. Um, such as this one. And I've done various bits of TV as well. And there's links to all of that there. So if people are interested in finding out more about some of my research, it's all on the website. All right. Uh, thanks very much. One final question. Okay. Do you have any particular favorite pop culture representation of Robin Hood? Oh yeah, absolutely. hundred percent. I, I know we've kind of skirted around the Robin Hood issue because I, in, in, in our emails, I sort of said, I'd like to keep it quite focused on the real history and archeology, span but I am genuinely interested in, in, in the Robin Hood myth. Um, I, I do think that there are certain things about the Robin Hood story as well, which do relate in a sense to the, the, the real life world. You know, this idea, I think Robin Hood is, is probably coming out of, of, of that tension um, between lordship and, uh, and 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 the peasantry, uh, in particular, I think it relates to food and the and access to food in the later medieval period, particularly in the period of the Great Famine of uh, thirteen fourteen to seventeen. I think the stories are probably coming out of that period. Um, certainly, the earliest representations of the Robin Hood myth do refer to the king as being Edward, rather than as as, as Richard or, or or John, for example. Um, so I do I do think there are you know some wonderful tales, and I've I've been reading the stories of Robin Hood for many years. Latterly, I've been reading lots of academic literature on the on the subject. But yeah, I do enjoy the tv representations and filmic representations of it my favorite is the first version of robin hood that i ever encountered in the earlier 1980s on itv um, the british tv station uh-huh. and it is uh the michael prade version robin the hooded man uh, and what i particularly like about that is firstly there's some damn good actors in it uh, you've got a, a very young ray winston for example is in it richard o'brien is in it uh, Phil Davis is in it. You know, there's some there's some good people in there, and and some people who went on to some quite you know, quite big things. But what I really like about it is the darkness of of the tales. There's a real sort of gothic, Celtic terror about some of some of those representations. They only ran for three series, and I've got all of them. On, on, on film downstairs and I, I really like the way that they didn't shy away from 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 some of the sort of more repellent aspects of the stories okay. uh you know there's there's quite a lot of uh quite a lot of paganism about them as well and and i find them really genuinely compelling and i've, I've recently been re-watching some of them too and i think they st- they stand up they're possibly a little dated, but they still do stand up much more than a lot of the films do. For example, I don't. I, there isn't a film, a Hollywood movie of Robin Hood that I like. I, I don't enjoy any of them. But, but the TV oh. series Robin Hooded Man, I do like. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much um, for your time. This has been a lot of fun. No, you're welcome. Uh, you're welcome. So, great. Um, th- thanks for asking me. Thanks for It's agreeing. been a pleasure to spend a couple of hours talking to another Nottinghamshire nerd. <laughs> My thanks again to James Wright for taking the time to share his knowledge and expertise with us. 
There are some fascinating discussions that were cut for time, including a discussion of the three extant pubs in Nottingham that all claim to be the oldest in England, and how Errol Flynn's swashbuckling antics helped to popularize a myth about medieval castle construction that pervades to this day. These discussions and more will be made available to our Patreon supporters. So if you're interested in hearing more, getting access to other rewards, and of course helping to support the show, head over to patreon.com slash intogreenwood. You can also help by chatting us up to your friends and sharing us on social media. We're on Twitter as at intogreenwood, and you can reach us directly with suggestions and comments via intogreenwood at gmail.com. You can follow today's guest, James Wright, via his work at Triskelly Heritage. That's Triskelly, T-R-I-S-K-E-L-E, Heritage, or follow at JPWArchaeology on Twitter. Into the Greenwood is produced and edited by me, Thaddeus Papke, and made possible by the support of our listeners. This week, we have a very special thanks to our first backers on Patreon, Emily Holt and Roger Papke. Your encouragement and support is invaluable, and I cannot thank you enough for being the first to join our merry band of scoundrels in the Greenwood. Until next time, may your aim be true, my friends. <laughs>